Welcome back to End is the Future, a podcast that brings together great minds to address the opportunities and challenges of making businesses both sustainable and profitable. I am Ilham Kadri, and I'm delighted to be your host today. If you are as passionate about sustainable business as I am, let's explore how End is the Future together. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Jean-Pascal Veniperzel, who is one of the world's top climatologists and the former vice chair of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He is a professor of climate and environmental sciences and co-director of the specialized Master in Science and Management of the Environment at the Université Catholique de Louvain, UCL. Jean-Pascal's passion for science started early. When he was a boy, he built a telescope out of a getter scraps and eyeglasses lenses, believe it or not, that he got from opticians' offices. He quickly became interested in climate science, and at age of 22, he attended the very first World Climate Conference in Geneva in 1709, later at the IPCC meeting in Madrid in 1995. He contributed to a sentence and famous one in the IPCC analysis that states, the balance of evidence suggests that there is a discernible human influence on global climate. And he was so right. So he has truly been at the heart, at the very heart of some of the most influential scientific research. I was lucky enough to meet Jean-Pascal a few weeks ago at a special dinner. I have always been fascinated by his work. I lived in Belgium. His name is, is all around. He's very famous. And I said, you must come on my podcast. I'm really looking forward to hearing his thoughts about how businesses can make a difference as we strive to achieve the end, A-N-D, that is to be both sustainable and profitable. Jean-Pascal, thank you so much for being here today. It, you're most welcome. And it's a pleasure and a honor. So Jean-Pascal, in this podcast, we, we really want to discuss the important role of businesses, right? And the businesses can play in the fight against climate change. But before we get to that, as a scientist myself, I'm deeply interested in your research and your relationship with science. I want to start by simply asking you, is there a moment, uh, Jean-Pascal, in your life, like a, an aha moment, right? Uh, very authentic, very simple, that really made you passionate about climate science and climate action? Yeah, it's a hard question. So I, I, my, my, my initial answer, you know, is every day. I mean, I, I, I have such a passion for the subject that um, every day I find uh, some, something that is really interesting uh, happening around uh, climate change, whether it's uh, while reading a newspaper or reading a scientific article or talking to colleagues or talking sometimes to uh, victims of um, effects of climate change. That little boy, Jean-Pascal, you know, I mean, being in the telescope, you were already in love with science from day one, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was in love with science. That's true. I had a passion for astronomy, but the passion was transformed into a passion for um, all planets uh, a little later when I was studying physics at uh, the Université Catholique de Louvain here. And um, 
uh, I realized that uh, I was as interested by uh, the, the space and the stars and the astronomy uh, as uh, by human issues and issues uh, related to development, uh, you know, human development at the surface of this planet. And I learned about uh, a research uh, group uh, that was um, starting, or which had started a few years before, um, uh, starting to do climate modeling to study past climates, but also looking at future climate and the influence of uh, CO2 uh, emissions on future climates. And I was about to leave for Liège, the University of Liège, to study astrophysics. And then I decided, well, if I do climate science, if I specialize in climate science, I will be able to combine my interest for astronomy and physics and my interest for human issues. So that's why I stayed in Louvain-la-Neuve and became a climate modeler. Yeah, that's great. That's the North Star. And you have been, in fact... Uh, actively involved in many IPCC reports, right, Jean-Pascal? After the latest reports was published, the UN Secretary General said it provided uh, a code ray warning for humanity. And it was also a bit alarming to read that some effects of climate change are now irreversible. But there seem to be a lot of reasons for hope, certainly from a scientific point of view. Can you tell us a bit more about the science behind these findings? Well, you know, the, the fact that the IPCC reports are red warning, I mean, I wouldn't say it's only the last one. It was mm -hmm. uh, severe warnings uh, before as well. And uh, even if you, if you take the, uh, the very first IPCC report, even before I uh, became involved in IPCC, if you read the 1990 report, the very first IPCC report, you see that Uh, the um, the warnings it contained about the um, the changes the the significant changes in the inhabitability of the planet uh, were uh, present in that report already. So we have been warned for a long time that if we continue to um, emit so much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, CO2 in particular, um, which has a big default and that it's invisible. Uh, of course, it's also a, a heat-trapping gas, a greenhouse gas, but uh, maybe the fact that it's in, invisible uh, is uh, um, uh, another uh, big default because we don't realize uh, the, the huge amounts of CO2 we emit in the atmosphere and we are really changing the composition of that atmosphere. We have increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere since the pre-industrial time by 50%, basically. So if we have thickened... Uh, the um, uh, the the, the thermal insulation layer that we have around the, the planet, and obviously under that insulation layer, uh, it becomes warmer. And of course, we can adapt to a warmer climate up to a point. There have been over the last 10,000 years climate fluctuations for of about plus one or plus minus uh, one degree Celsius on the average. But we are heading, if we don't really change our, our development pattern, we are heading towards uh, several degrees, actually. I, actually, I, I don't believe those uh, numbers that were quoted during Glasgow. I think they, were, they are very optimistic, saying that in Glasgow, we put the word on um, 2.7 or, or 1.8 or 1.i degree C. I don't believe in those numbers. They are based on very optimistic hypotheses. But still, that being It, the, um, the, the IPCC uh, doesn't only diagnose the, uh, the problem, it also um, assesses the, uh, the many solutions that exist 
there are many solutions in in each sector of human activity actually and and that's one of the uh, uh, reasons for hope actually is that uh, we know on paper at least what the solutions are and many of those solutions of those solutions are in the hands of business actually yeah and indeed jean pascal the ipcc reports actually gives us five scenarios of what could happen from the very high to the very low which one do you think is the most likely well you know the ipcc never answered that refuses systematically to answer that question and um Uh, if I was speaking for IPCC, which I am not doing right now, since I don't right now have a function in IPCC, I hope to have one again one day, but that's another story. Maybe I can be a little freer uh, to, mm -hmm. to answer. Well, I'm a, an optimistic person. So I think uh, we, we could, uh, if we wanted, be on one of the low scenario. Maybe the very lowest scenario is would be extremely difficult to uh, Uh, to achieve and to realize, but maybe not the very low scenario, but the low scenario, which would still keep us in the vicinity of um, slightly below two degrees warming above the pre-industrial, uh, could still be realized. And uh, we should really aim for the scenario that is the, the lowest one. And that means the uh, emission reductions, which are the largest. Absolutely. Um, let, let's talk a bit, Jean-Pascal, about the world we are in. I mean, I was born in Morocco and then I had uh, the luxury to travel around the world and live in Middle East, in the United States of America, back to Belgium. And I know, you know, th th there is a different climate changes, right? And it's not equal across the globe. And you, you've been to COP26 and we've seen, you know, the president's frankly apologizing almost, right? I mean, he did on India and China and, and explaining that, you know, the, the, the phase out is the phase down now from coal. So, but, but you know, it, it must be different in Belgium than it does in Morocco, for instance. Can, can, you, can you help us and elaborate on that? And what do you think it means for global businesses? In terms of impact, you mean? Yes, in terms indeed. Of impact of climate change. Yes, yeah. of course. Uh, um, every part of the world will uh, experience, unfortunately, some impact, but the impacts will be quite different uh, from one location to another. Um, in Morocco, for example, to ex a certain extent, uh, you will um, suffer from the um, the drying uh, of the entire Mediterranean basin. So as well, the southern part of Europe as the northern part of Africa, including significant parts of Morocco, will unfortunately become drier. So on average, there'll be a decrease in uh, in rainfall. That will not uh, take place in the same way in, in uh, the northern part of Europe, which on the contrary will become wetter on average. Mm -hmm. But what would certainly happen in common Uh, because mm -hmm. that's happening basically every, everywhere, is that the intensity of rain, when it rains, mm -hmm. uh, has a tendency to become uh, higher with uh, extremes that are higher, and that can lead, uh, can, can lead to floods, as we have seen this summer uh, in, in Belgium and Germany, but as uh, has been experienced in Morocco as well, uh, by the way. So that's certainly one uh, category of impact. But the simple simple fact that temperature is rising uh, is is posing problems in terms of health uh, because the body is adapted to a certain temperature range. The fact that sea level uh, is rising is also affecting and is is will affect more and more 
countries which have a coastline, including Morocco and, and Belgium, even if the coast of uh, Belgium is much shorter than the one you have in Morocco. Uh, but sea level rise will be a big problem. You know, if we were staying on the uh, highest scenario, we could be close to two meters above the present sea level by the end of this century, in the next 80 years. And then if you look further, which is very important in case of sea level, is to, to have a long-term view because the ice sheets have started to melt and they contribute in the very long term to a very significant increase. Uh, there's a novel aspect of the last IPCC report published last August, and that is, for example, in 2300, that's not tomorrow morning, but it's still a time scale, um, in 2300, uh, in the worst case for the high scenario, the uh, sea level rise could reach 15 meters, 1.5. Wow. 15 meter, 10 plus 5. So uh, mm -hmm. the risks uh, with an S associated to climate change are really uh, very, very serious. Yeah, and this is huge and important for companies like ours where we used to do our enterprise risk management metrics, but climate change was not part of it just 10 years ago and now it does. And you're right, it's not the problem of the others. We've seen with the floods that occurred in Belgium, Germany and the Netherlands last summer. We saw firsthand the effects of climate change, and I know that you visited you personally, many of the victims in some of the hardest hit areas in Belgium, and thank you for that. So, Jean-Pascal, you just came back from COP26. Would you say that the people out there have achieved more than just blah, blah? Oh, yes, significantly more. And at the same time, it's far from enough, you know, <laughs> and it has been more or less the same for all the COPs I have attended, and this was my 25th COP, uh, so I have seen uh, many of them. Um, so a lot was achieved, but but it's uh, short of what's needed at the same time. So that's very frustrating. But some progress was made. I mean, there's a, a clear recognition of the, the urgency uh, of acting much more. Of course, the atmosphere doesn't understand that. The atmosphere doesn't understand any um, uh, written clear recognition uh, of the science or whatever. It only understands emission cuts and, and, and mm -hmm. emissions. And um, the, the, the call to end subsidies for fossil fuel, to uh, phase down coal, etc. If uh, those calls are listened to, uh, they should have uh, important positive effects in the coming years. But it's really urgent to do much more. Yeah. And as business leaders, Jean-Pascal, and, and this is, um, you know, a topic in the C-suites these days, we've had to manage and we have to manage the climate crisis, right? And we, we are most aware about what's going on on the top of other crises, like in the unprecedented COVID crisis, right? And, and its aftermath including supply chain disruption, cheap shortages, you know, inflation, gas prices, as you can see them in Europe. Yet there is a lot of hope in this green recovery led by Europe in Europe. And there are so many opportunities for business growth. In other words, there is a very strong business case for becoming more sustainable and creating more sustainable solutions for our customers and their customers. And we've seen amazing growth in, in circular solution or clean mobility. Nobody would have bet on EV, you know, and that's many OEMs in Europe will just declare the intent to abandon um, the, the, um, the ICE, the internal convention engine cars for EV and hybrids, for, his, for instance. What's your thought? How to manage all of those evolving crises? What's about the yellow vest syndrome 
let, let's take care of the end of the month, not the end of the world. At the same time, we business leaders, we need to have an eye on the microscope and an eye on the telescope. Absolutely. Um, you know, this is um, basically why I wear almost permanently this, this pin here, which is the logo of the um, sustainable, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which, uh, and it's interesting, have been adopted two months before the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015. So these goals were universally uh, adopted by the uh, UN General Assembly. And the first of them is eradicating poverty, for example. The number 13 is climate action, but there is also biodiversity protection, ending hunger, uh, education for everyone, gender uh, balance, etc. So um, I think part of the answer to, you, to your question is, is um, by drawing the attention to the importance of stopping uh, at looking at problems in silos, you know, climate change on Monday, biodiversity on Tuesday, uh, profits on Wednesday, and and uh, soil pollution on Thursday or whatever. I mean, synergies are, are really um, very important, and it's probably uh, even even though it doesn't look that that way, I maintain that it's probably easier overall after maybe a difficult initial period to 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 attack different problems at the same time, even if they are complex, than to attack one problem after the other without looking at the uh, opportunities to, to, to develop synergies between uh, the solutions to each of those problems. So that's part of the answer. So, for example, you, you mentioned the yellow vest. Uh, it, it's very important then we, when we talk about carbon price, I mean, we know that this will have some impact on, on the price of products uh, where uh, energy is used. Uh, there is no other way that's, uh, that will uh, increase uh, the, the price of, of, of many products, uh, at least those who at the moment use uh, a lot of uh, hidden uh, carbon in their uh, production. If uh, the money, or at least part of the money that's collected uh, tr either through the um, ETS or through carbon taxes or whatever is not used by governments to um, help uh, the um, the less privileged, those who have the, the most difficulties to make the end uh, meet at the end of the month. Uh, if some of that money is not used to help them, mm -hmm. you will have yellow vests everywhere and you will not have support for uh, any kind of environmental policy. So that's one example where looking at um, SDG, Sustainable Development Goal number one, uh, related to poverty, um, and uh, SDG uh, 13 on climate or seven on energy, they need to be looked at uh, together because otherwise there will be uh, difficulty and disruption, which will finally uh, affect everyone as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, you spoke about carbon pricing, uh, Jean-Pascal. Obviously, there is one in Europe. Um, are you in favor of one in, in the US? I mean, federal price, uh, carbon pricing, I, we know there is an emerging one in China, but still shy uh, because many companies like ours, they are also, you know, we are competitors globally and, and, and many are afraid about carbon leakage and innovation leakage. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I've worked with economists um, uh, many times uh, during my career, and I learned uh, with them that uh, it was one of the most um, efficient uh, overall um, policy that you could uh, set up, and that is to increase the uh, price of pollution. After all, 
you don't care so much about something which is free or basically free. So as long as the um, atmosphere as a dustbin is, is free to use, well, nobody will care. And, and the more expensive it is to use that, that dustbin, the more expensive, the more, uh, the more uh, everybody will think twice before putting an additional ton uh, of CO2 or other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So yes, um, mm. any um, policy which um, succeeds in increasing that price, which has been very low for too long, uh, I know it's of the order of 60 euros now in Europe, but mm -hmm. it's very low in many other parts of the world, is good. I was on a te on a teleconference this morning uh, organized by the Chinese government. Uh, so I was in Beijing this morning and mm -hmm. they focused ve very, very much on the importance for them uh, to help them reduce their emissions on their carbon price system. So it's not only in the EU, it's expanding and that's good. And the... Um, the, the, the system also that the EU is thinking about implementing uh, in its Fit for 55 with the, the CBAM, the, um, the border adjustment mechanism, will, will help in that perspective because it will help to create a, a level playing field. Obviously, companies um, need to walk the talk, right, to not be accused of greenwashing and really do it. Uh, we need frameworks. We need non-financial, you know, KPIs uh, that are not coherent yet, you know, between market industries and between continents. How do you think businesses can best achieve these goals from a scientific point of view and in the right legal framework? What you, you, you mentioned about the, the, the risk um, of greenwashing is really important. And I think that many um, many uh, companies are seeing that that um, the confidence of their customers in in their in their product in their activity uh, is more and more in many sectors related to the the confidence those customers have in uh, their uh, declarations uh, and their actions uh, in in the uh, area of uh, environment and sustainability. So it's really key, and there is. Um, it's not only the risk of greenwashing. There is um, uh, in in many uh, sectors, um, and I'm not targeting uh, Solvay. We should recognize that there is a lot mm -hmm. of greenwashing happening, and this is really um, bad. I mean, it it may deliver sh very short term benefit for those who are playing that game. It will it will get back to them. They will lose in in the medium to long term. So eliminating greenwashing. Uh, by uh, all uh, useful methods, uh, by improving the the reporting, the, um, mm -hmm. the guidelines on reporting on, on carbon disclosure, but disclosure also on other aspects like human rights and uh, mm -hmm. uh, other aspects of sustainability is, is really very important. Um, I'm going to just deviate a bit from, you know, climate, CO2, greenhouse gas emission to talk a bit about circularity, right? And And, and there is a lot of now attempt to to look at the way we can become more circular in the way we produce, we manufacture and we recycle. What do you think about circularity? I mean, is it something you see it as an enabler for, for climate change and in general for sustainability? Um, do you see this partnership? Because we believe we cannot do it alone. How we can nurture more partnership to to, to go faster, to accelerate, but also to de-risk projects and how much of an impact do you think such partnership can have? Well, it's certainly very important 
but there's a but. Uh, I think uh, we should be very um, realistic and honest, and not make people believe that hundred percent circularity is um, possible so easily. I mean, there are limits uh, to to the um, uh, to the the number of times many um, products can be uh, recycled and and reused, uh, and um, Sometimes when I read, um, you know, declarations from companies about circularity, they give the impression that they, they would like their customers to believe that they are heading towards a situation where there will be no impact at all of their activity and that, that, that they, we are, they will achieve 100% circularity. <laughs> and um, talking to colleagues, experts in um, minerals and, uh, and, and recycling of uh, minerals, um, I came to understand that it's not that simple. And um, there are issues with, um, it's very difficult to, to reach very high level of circularity. So I think honesty and, and uh, avoiding greenwashing there is very important as well. I, I think it's better to um, not to mislead um, customers by pretending uh, that we would uh, reach um, 100% circularity with um, no impact on the environment, because that's probably not um, going to happen. No, absolutely. And I think we need to have more science, you know, from cradle to cradle or cradle to grave type of life assessment to ensure that you're right. Uh, we can measure the recyclability or the circularity, but it's a journey. We are coming almost to an end here of this fabulous conversation. I know you have two young sons and I also have a teenage son, Jean-Pascal. At the end of the day, Everything we are trying to achieve for the climate is to make the world a better place for our kids and for them. What would your message be to the younger generation? You know, I, I like to, to start with a parenthesis. Maybe something that struck me in, at COP26 is the number of uh, times the, the delegates at COP, uh, you know, the top delegate talking on behalf of their country, whether the vice president of the European Commission, Franz Timmermans or others, spoke about their children or small children. That was striking. I mean, it was the first time it happened at such, a, at such a scale from countries of all kinds. That was really striking. So indeed, as you said, uh, what uh, we are doing, or that what we should do uh, is uh, indeed um, uh, about the, the future uh, of, of, of young, the young people uh, who are there today and those who will come. And um, I think we need to, to, to tell them that uh, there is hope uh, and that hope comes from um, action. Actually, I think it's something Greta has said, and I think she is right uh, when she said that hope comes from the, um, the knowledge uh, that we have, that we can act, we can reduce emissions, we can pollute uh, less, we can go to pollution zero if, if almost zero if we want, we can change consumption and production patterns. We can uh, share resources uh, better uh, at the surface of, of this planet for everyone. Uh, it is possible. So I think that's um, what I think we need to, to, to say. But then uh, it's not only a matter of uh, talking, otherwise it's, it is blah, 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 uh, quoting uh, Greta Thunberg as well. It needs to be 
um, demonstrated that these talks uh, are really uh, translated in action and that people who talk uh, walk as well. And uh, walking the talk is really what's needed. And there is no better way to end this fascinating and insightful conversation than with the hope. And that hope is important. It's key. And uh, I'm sure you will join me by saying that science will fuel that innovations which will make this hope a reality. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Jean-Pascal. Thank you. Your ideas, your provoking thoughts are an inspiration for all of us as we strive to make business both sustainable and profitable. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information or to listen to other episodes, visit our website. And if you like these podcasts, don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, be safe.